Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 4.29, Reacting to Rebellion. Following the battles of Lexington and Concord, concussive waves washed over the colonies. From New England down all the way to the south, suddenly everybody was forced to come to grips that there was no longer a looming war, but rather a real, actual war. We will begin in Massachusetts and New England, as, at least for the moment, they were the actual people now fighting the British. We will then move to Philadelphia, where the delegates were gathering for the Second Continental Congress, where, unsurprisingly, events in Massachusetts would dominate the conversation. Finally, we are going to move to the South, where the risk of slave rebellion would combine with the outbreak of violence to the North to direct events throughout the entire region. The reaction to what had happened on April 19th was nothing short of an electrified shockwave that pulsed throughout the colonies. As the smoke from the battle was still clearing, the news of it had already begun to spread. Express riders throughout Massachusetts were racing out to spread the news of the British attacks at Lexington. Within days of the attack, militias from throughout all of New England had descended on Boston, essentially putting the city under siege. As news spread out from Boston via those express riders, it would soon become clear that Lexington and Concord were not going to be isolated events. Some three weeks after the first battle in Massachusetts, the Americans would make their first offensive move of the war. American eyes had fallen towards upstate New York, and a pair of forts along Lake George and Lake Champlain at Ticonderoga and Crown Point, respectively. Now, if you have listened to this entire podcast, these two locations should be pretty familiar. However, as a quick refresher, back during the French and Indian War, both of these sites had been major targets for the British. Following the end of the war, Fort Corellin was captured by the British and renamed after its location, Ticonderoga. During the French and Indian War, Corellin had been the site of one of the most substantial British losses under James Abercrombie, when his army of 16,000 was repulsed by an army of 3,600. It would not be until the following year, 1759, that Geoffrey Amherst would take Fort Corellin, as well as what was long viewed as the primary target at Crown Point. Following the end of the French and Indian War, however, nobody really paid much attention to the old two forts, which a decade and a half earlier had been so important to both the British and the French alike. The concern for the colonists was twofold. First, the forts did, from time to time, hold large amounts of cannon and other supplies that the Americans wanted to prevent from being used against them. Second, there was concern that the British might attempt to bring reinforcements south from Quebec, along the St. Lawrence River, and ultimately into Lake Champlain and Lake George. If the British could do this, they would be able to get into the Hudson and ultimately isolate New England from the rest of the colonies. Apparently, the target was pretty easy to settle on, because two different men had done just that. Both Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold were interested in the forts. The problem is, however, that in May 1775, the revolution was still a disorganized affair. It would be another month before Washington would be named the commander of the newly created Continental Army, 
In May, though, it was still lots of individual groups acting for roughly the same overall objective. This means that Ethan Allen and Benedict Arnold were not acting in concert with each other, or initially even aware of the other's machinations. Ethan Allen had been tasked with the job of capturing Ticonderoga from the Connecticut Assembly, whereas it was the Massachusetts Committee of Public Safety that assigned Arnold to the same task. For the Connecticut group, they turned to a specific militia known as the Green Mountain Boys, of which Allen was their leader. Meanwhile, in Massachusetts, Benedict Arnold was given a commission to lead an assault on the fort. Arnold's commission was signed by Benjamin Church, who, if you will recall, had already become a British informant by this point, giving us a small bit of foreshadowing into Arnold's own career. Arnold would head out and join up with the Green Mountain Boys, who were already well underway. The Green Mountain Boys bristled against the arrival of Arnold, who attempted to assume command over the group, a group that was already very satisfied with their own leadership. The group was not going to allow Arnold to lead, considering that he didn't actually have any men of his own to command and was planning on just stepping in and taking over. Although Ethan Allen would maintain his command, they did not send Arnold packing, allowing him to join up with their expedition. The attack came during the early morning hours of May 10th. Really, though, it was not so much an attack as the Americans informing the British garrison that they were seizing the fort. The Americans rolled into the battle with some 200 men, whereas the British had just a small handful actually garrisoning the fort. Ethan Allen strolled, unopposed, into the barracks, called the British commander, who was just standing around in his underwear trying to figure out what was going on, a damned old rat, and that was pretty much it. There was no real resistance. This was not going to be a repeat of 1758. Ticonderoga quickly fell. Two days later, on May 12th, Crown Point and its garrison of fewer than a dozen men would follow suit and come into American control. Nobody during either engagement was injured. The offensive against Ticonderoga and Crown Point were not exactly the kind of battles that get made into movies. However, they are important for a few reasons that we need to take a moment to consider. It can at least be argued that the events of Lexington and Concord had been a reaction to the British regulars marching towards Concord. Sure, the details of the retreat make it look like more than mere self-defense, but at least the argument exists. With Ticonderoga and Crown Point, however, there is no basis of justification. These were clearly offensive missions for the Americans. The attack on Ticonderoga came on May 10th, which just so happened to be the same day that the Second Continental Congress began their meetings in Philadelphia. The events in upstate New York would cause more than a few headaches that an initially reluctant Congress was going to be forced to address. Before we can understand the reaction of the Congress to the events at Ticonderoga, we must first understand the fault lines that appeared amongst the delegates themselves. By the time that the delegates to the new Congress were arriving in Philadelphia, the news of what had happened in Massachusetts was well known. 
A majority of the delegates arriving for the Congress were the same men who had been present the previous fall, although there were a handful of notable changes. Benjamin Franklin, who was back from London after a 16-year absence, was now part of the Congress. John Hancock, his belly now presumably filled up on salmon, joined the Massachusetts delegation. In June, Peyton Randolph of Virginia would end up going home to serve as the Speaker of the Virginia House of Burgesses. He was replaced by a 32-year-old lawyer named Thomas Jefferson. New York would see the biggest changes, with several new delegates, including George Clinton, Robert Livingston, and Philip Schuyler joining their ranks. The delegates were greeted with fanfare as the colonies began making preparations for war. In Philadelphia, by April 26, some 8,000 people gathered in the city to form a military association. This was a kind of unofficial militia, which was necessary because the Quakers who had returned to the assembly following the French and Indian War also returned to that old tenet of pacifism. Although there seemed to be an undeniable enthusiasm for war, that did not mean all of the delegates were in agreement over exactly what it meant now that blood had been shed. Almost immediately, two groups would emerge amongst the delegates, with the central question being if the purpose of all of this was going to be reconciliation or independence. John Adams and the Massachusetts delegates were, unsurprisingly, interested in independence. Adams had spent his final days in Massachusetts before leaving for the Congress, busy discussing the creation of a revolutionary government in Massachusetts, with the idea being that the other colonies would follow suit. However, even after Lexington and Concord, the majority of Congress was not yet willing to make such a dramatic move. Pennsylvania, in particular, was hesitant to find themselves in a war for independence. Led by John Dickinson, the primary goal of the Pennsylvania delegation was reconciliation. Critically, it was not as though Dickinson was a loyalist. He had been a supporter of the American cause going back to his letters from a Pennsylvania farmer. Although Dickinson is going to spend the next year as the leading voice in the reconciliation camp of the Congress, this is not to say that he should be equated to, say, Joseph Galloway who would end up as one of the highest-profile loyalists. Dickinson, as we are going to see, was loyal to the American cause, but differed in exactly what he believed the ultimate outcome should be. Dickinson was aware of the lack of enthusiasm for reconciliation. He likewise acknowledged that Britain was to blame for the current state of affairs. For Dickinson, however, the idea of independence was equally anathema. Pragmatically, Dickinson viewed the world as being a dangerous place. He had, after all, come of age during the French and Indian War. He had personally seen what happens when European powers clashed with the colonies. Should the Americans somehow gain their independence from the British? Were the French and the Spanish just going to be licking their chops at the opportunity to take a shot at America? It certainly would not be the first time. It was a dangerous world, and independence would mean that the colonies would have to face those dangers without the safety that the mighty British Empire provided. 
These divisions would not be solved in the first few days, but would dominate the first year of the Congress's existence. Dickinson would find himself facing off against the Independence faction, led by Adams and the Lee family of Virginia. While debates over the war that they now found themselves in would continue, more urgent matters quickly reached the Congress, when just a few days after they began meeting, news arrived about the American victories over Ticonderoga and Crown Point. These battles were a serious problem for the new Congress. The Congress was telling everybody to calm down and proceed carefully. Literally at the same time that they were telling everybody to proceed with caution, Allen and Arnold to the north were busy acting in a way that was decidedly not cautious. The next problem was one of geography. Neither Ethan Allen nor Benedict Arnold were from New York, nor acting at the behest of New York, meaning that Massachusetts had, more or less, just invaded another colony unannounced. This would bring up questions about land grants between the colonies and how the colonies coexisted with each other, especially now that war appeared to be inevitable. Congress would learn about the capture of Ticonderoga and Crown Point on May 15th, just five days after their first meeting of the second session. What would follow was months of chaos emanating from the Congress. It would soon become plainly clear that Congress was struggling to wrap their heads around what was happening and to react appropriately. Congress told Allen and Arnold to move the weapons from Crown Point and Ticonderoga to the southern part of Lake George, until peace was restored and the cannons could be returned to their proper owners. This would start something of a trend for Congress, where they would recommend acting out of an abundance of caution, and then shortly thereafter, going a different route altogether. For example, at roughly the same time they sent a letter to Quebec trying to convince the Canadians to join in the common fight. This was not exactly that far of a reach. The Crown had, through the Quebec Act, not made many friends in Quebec itself. As a show of good faith, they promised that they would patiently wait for a response and reassured the Canadians that they would never invade Canada. Congress steadfastly stood by that promise. For an entire four weeks, when they told Philip Schuyler to go ahead, invade, and capture Canada. I bring this up today because for the next several episodes, one of the common themes that we are going to see is Congress trying to find their own footing. They were going to have to grapple with multiple questions. As we saw already today, there was the question of exactly what they were now doing. Was the present war being fought for the express purpose of reconciliation, or was it being waged for independence? What was the Congress itself? Had they become a provisional government? And if so, what exactly did that mean? These questions will not come with quick answers. In the rapidly changing environment of the war, the role and goals of Congress will too evolve quickly as everybody fights to come to grips with the events. Well, the delegates in Philadelphia would grapple with the news of the rebellion. In the South, news of Lexington and Concord would arrive at the worst possible moment for Virginia Governor Lord Dunmore. 
in order to fully understand events going on in the southern colonies. We must turn our attention to the elephant in the room. We have spent time talking about why the different classes were fighting. However, in the South, there was one class that we have not paid much attention to. This is, of course, the slave population. By the time of the Revolution, there were nearly half a million enslaved people living in the colonies, some 200,000 of which lived in Virginia alone. For as long as slavery has existed in the colonies, there was always that ever-present threat of slave rebellion. We talked about this last season during our series on slavery, and just how real this fear was for those living in the South. This breakdown of relations between the American colonists and the British, however, would ratchet those fears up to a brand new level. Concerns over widespread slave rebellions were not isolated to the southern colonies either. On the eve of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, there had been concern that a slave rebellion in Massachusetts was looming. Newspaper articles from the weeks before the outbreak of hostilities confirmed that the colonists in New England were on edge. In the town of Farmingham, located to the west of Boston and southwest of Concord, there was real fear that they were facing the prospect of a rebellion of both the free and enslaved blacks in the region. During the month before the Battle of Lexington and Concord, there was news of a conspiracy being plotted. These rumors often pointed fingers at the free black population, often the Native American population, and universally at the slaves. Fears of a slave uprising were present all throughout the colonies. However, it probably should not be surprising that in the southern colonies, these fears were backed up by just the sheer numbers of slaves that existed. In the southern colonies, there was a risk of slave uprisings in April 1775. Along the James River in Virginia, there were reoccurring threats of uprisings. Things were indeed serious enough that suspected ringleaders amongst the enslaved population were arrested, with death by hanging being the most common outcome for those unfortunate enough to be accused. Throughout Virginia, slave patrols were busy marching around looking for any sign of trouble. Critically, this is going on at roughly the same time that the first shots of the revolution were being fired on Lexington Green. On April 21st, there were multiple disturbances reported throughout Virginia, including one in Williamsburg itself. This particular uprising in Williamsburg would spur Governor Dunmore to action in what would end up being a fateful move. Dunmore, in order to prevent the local slave population from better arming itself, ordered that the gunpowder being stored in the Williamsburg magazine be moved to the relative safety of the HMS Magdalene. This concerned the colonists, as it meant that should there be a slave rebellion breaking out, they themselves would be handicapped in their ability to defend against it. The colonists argued that the powder magazine was built by the town itself, literally for this exact reason, to protect from potential slave rebellions. However, undeterred, Dunmore ordered that the 15 barrels of gunpowder be seized. The seizure of the powder was concerning. However, it was Dunmore's next move that would really send everybody into a frenzy. The disapproving colonists decided that they were going to let Dunmore know just how mad they were, 
and on April 22nd, published a letter in the Virginia Gazette calling out the governor for essentially leaving them defenseless. Dunmore, not amused by the public remonstrance, decided to fire his own warning back to the recalcitrant colonists. Dunmore declared that unless the colonists backed down and allowed for the powder to be removed without harming any British official, he would declare freedom to the slaves and reduce the city of Williamsburg to ashes. This would have always caused an immediate uproar, which of course it did. However, Dunmore could not have possibly understood what a firestorm he was about to start. Again, all of this is happening contemporaneously to the Battle of Lexington and Concord. When Dunmore, therefore, was making his proclamation to free the slaves, he did not yet know of the news that was, at that very moment, racing via express rider towards him. Reports of what had happened in Massachusetts began rolling in on May 28th, with the official report coming in two days later on the 30th. In a society that was always happy to indulge a good conspiracy theory, this one was gift-wrapped for them. Really, this was not even that much of a reach for the colonists. The situation had been rife with tension for years, and particularly in the last few months, things had gone from bad to worse. The idea that Dunmore would be working in coordination with the British forces to the north seemed logical enough. As Dr. Robert Parkinson writes in his book, The Common Cause, Creating Race and Nation in the American Revolution, Dunmore had, completely unintentionally, issued the same orders that Thomas Gage had just a week earlier in Concord. Dunmore, with his threat, set off an almost immediate reaction in the colony. Quickly, the governor's safety came into direct question as over 600 men gathered in Fredericksburg with plans to march on the capital and remove Dunmore. While this group would ultimately be talked back from the ledge, a second smaller group led by Patrick Henry would go ahead and proceed. Meanwhile, many enslaved people were making their way to Dunmore, offering their services in exchange for freedom. Although Dunmore would momentarily decline, he made clear that this was more of a wait-and-see approach than anything else. Should the group led by Patrick Henry attack him, the offer would be honored. In the end, both sides ended up backing down. An agreement was reached whereby Dunmore and the British purchased, rather than seized, the gunpowder. Dunmore did his best to move attention off of himself, reminding Virginians that the slaves posed a very real risk. However, the damage was already done. Both sides had substantial incentive not to push things further. Patrick Henry and his group certainly would have been more than happy to drive Dunmore out of the colony for good. However, at this point, they feared the repercussions, chiefly the freeing of the slaves, that would follow. Dunmore himself quickly realized just how precarious the situation was, and he had little interest in accelerating an outbreak of violence. The news from Lexington and Concord had completely changed the situation for both sides. The colonists now viewed Dunmore's actions through a lens of duplicity. Well, Dunmore surely realized that the colonists' threats were not simply idle fist-waving. Violence had broken out, and it certainly was not a leap that it was going to spread out of New England. 
Dunmore's comments about freeing the slaves would itself produce widespread effects as well. Although Dunmore's offer had been limited to just Virginia, it did not stop other colonies from reacting to the intrinsic threat that they all faced from it. Those people who were enslaved also were aware of the potential for open rebellion and were looking towards the British to offer the exact kind of thing that Dunmore was now hinting at. Indian Superintendent John Stewart, who himself was forced to flee to Florida, reported that newspapers throughout the South were filled with news of slave plots and potential insurrections. In the wake of the outbreak of war, the rumor mill accelerated. Everywhere, there were rumors of duplicitous British actions. This included sending tens of thousands of muskets to North America in order to arm both Native Americans and the enslaved populations alike. Further exciting people's worst anxieties was a letter that arrived in Charleston on May 8th. This letter was from Arthur Lee to Henry Lawrence, warning Lawrence that should war break out, the British were considering a plan that would free the slaves, should they agree to fight for the British against their former masters. This was not hard for the colonists to believe. After all, it was the exact thing that Lord Dunmore had already said he was going to do. Had there been any belief before that his actions were not part of some greater conspiracy against the colonists, it was now abundantly clear that this plan was well calculated and came at the behest of London. Even if this was not exactly true, it didn't really matter. The colonists had all the proof that they needed. These were not isolated incidents either, as all throughout the spring of 1775, there were increasing fears and perceived evidence of slave plots throughout the southern colonies. In Maryland, a free black man named John Simmons was tarred and feathered for his comments about enslaved people arming themselves. In South Carolina, it was James Dealey who found himself being tarred and feathered for celebrating at the news of the British sending over guns and ammunition to arm the slaves and the Indians. These are just two examples of a wave of fear and brutality that swept through the South in the spring of 1775. The risk of slave insurrections was nothing new to the colonies. Colonists had spent the better part of the last century sleeping with one eye open. This long-standing tension is how events like the 1741 slave trials in New York had even been possible. There was a genuine fear here. In the immediate aftermath of Lexington and Concord, British leadership in the South, somewhat haphazardly, played directly into the colonists' greatest fears. Robert Parkinson writes in The Common Cause that the conflict with the British was the filter through which many viewed the social conflict within the colonies. To finish this week, I want to look at a question that is paramount to everything that we have talked about today. Chiefly, why were people so eager to fight? We know from today that there was some kind of a war fever spreading throughout the colonies, that seemed increasingly hawkish towards the idea of a fight with Great Britain. The question remains, however, of exactly why this was. We have talked about this before, however, I want to touch on it again. 
it is easy to understand why the more wealthy merchants would balk at British interference in the colonies. They had a good thing going, and the last thing that they wanted is for London to get involved and mess everything up. However, the reaction came from more than just the wealthy rungs of society, and indeed seems to have permeated throughout all of the classes. It is, however, from the concept of class structure that we can begin to understand why so much of the colonial society agreed to fight. Historian Gordon Wood explains, in his book The Radicalism of the American Revolution, that unlike in other revolutionary moments, the American colonies were not suffering from rampant inequality or poverty, but rather from an abundance of prosperity. One of the defining features of colonial society at this time was the relative equality for the time. Now, before we go too far here, and you start hammering out those angry emails to me, I want to be clear that this is not to suggest that everybody was equal. Such a suggestion would be preposterous. There was, of course, the entire enslaved class of people. There were non-whites, there were women, there were Native Americans, amongst others. So, in this context, when we are talking about equality, I am talking about equality in a specific segment of the population and not through the wider general population of the colonies. Even then, amongst this white male society that I'm talking about right now, there was still definitely differences. Not everybody was equal. They were rich and poor alike. But rather, it goes to the fact that the differences within this segment were still noticeably less than they were across the ocean in Europe. Sure, there were wealthy Americans. However, what was lacking was a true aristocracy, with those hereditary titles to go along with it. The colonies provided that opportunity where labor could offer a degree of social mobility, otherwise unknown across the ocean in Europe. The problem was that the colonists stood in fear of the entire house of cards coming down on top of them. The novelty of their situation was not missed upon the colonists, who were aware that their standard of living exceeded what most people in Europe experienced. The problem, however, is that in a system like this, where things were markedly different from the norms over in Europe, the colonists stood in constant fear of their own vulnerabilities. We have discussed previously that when you look at the writings during the imperial crisis, so many of them refer to the fear that they were about to be delivered into slavery through the increasingly intrusive British policies. The way that the colonists used the term slavery meant somebody who lacked agency over their own rights. Often put into context, this meant that, as Englishmen, the colonists had the natural right to property, a right that nobody, including the king himself, could deprive them of. As Englishmen, however, they chose to give certain duties to the king through their representatives, which in this context would mean those representing them in parliament. Hence, in the slogan, no taxation without representation. It was the denial of representation combined with the crown's insistence to get taxes out of the colonists that threatened to reduce all of them to a state of bondage. As Wood states, dependence was now equated with slavery. Now, we can talk about the irony of the fact that a society that depended upon slave labor was loudly proclaiming their fears of being enslaved. 
but this was still a very real fear for many people. For the better part of a decade, the colonists had feared British intervention to colonial economic policy, disrupting the good thing that they had going. The last thing that any of them wanted was the crown coming in and making the colonies more like Europe. For many Americans, they viewed the prospect of British intervention as a real risk to the prosperity that they had come to enjoy. When Lord Dunmore made his threat that he would free the slaves and reduce Williamsburg to ashes, that presented a dual threat that the colonists were going to have to contend with. The primary concern was very direct to what Dunmore had threatened, specifically that the slaves would reduce Williamsburg to ashes. We talked last season in episodes 3.15 through 3.17 about that real sense of fear that the colonists had in regards to potential slave uprisings. It was the nightmare that kept them sleeping constantly with one eye open. More than just actual danger, however, Dunmore's comments were a direct threat to the colonists' way of life. By the time of the Revolution, slavery had become a systemic feature of the colonial economy. Although all of the colonies would benefit from slavery in one way or another, the southern colonies derived the majority of that benefit. Think back again to last season when we talked about Georgia in episode 3.14. If you'll recall, when Georgia was founded, it was done so as a colony without slavery. John Oglethorpe despised the institution and fought hard against the opposition in the colony who were trying to bring slavery into Georgia. The problem, though, for Oglethorpe was that Georgia found itself unable to compete economically against its neighboring slaveholding colonies. This was enough of a problem for Georgia that they were always stuck in a position of having to fight to keep the colonists from moving to South Carolina, where they could use slaves. If you want all the background on this, go back and listen to the episode. However, the point I'm trying to illustrate here is just how baked into the economy slavery was by the time that we reached the American Revolution. The example of Georgia took place nearly 50 years before where we are now. And since that time, the slave population had exploded. Yes, the colonists were afraid of slave rebellions, but they were equally as worried about what Dunmore freeing the slaves would mean for their fragile economy. If the colonists stood in fear of something bringing down that house of cards, Dunmore's threat was the exact thing that would be almost guaranteed to do just that. The colonists, desperate to preserve what they had, would have been equally as terrified of the economic ramifications of the slaves being freed as they would have been of the uprisings themselves. It was a very direct threat to that prosperity that they had so enjoyed and now feared losing. If the colonists feared British intervention in the colonial economy, freeing the slaves would bring consequences that would threaten to undo everything that they had built. For those Americans who were actually enslaved, they too were left to face the question of what their futures held. This was anything but an easy question. If the Americans were British subjects, then it had been the British who had stolen their freedom in the first place. Pragmatically, however, the American cause was being fought for by the literal people who held them in bondage. 
Those fears of a slave uprising in the months prior to the outbreak of hostilities were not mere paranoia for the colonists. There were indeed a segment of slaves and free blacks who were plotting. They were acutely aware of the commons by Dunmore about granting freedom to slaves who joined the British, and it was an offer that they eagerly waited to manifest. In the spring of 1775, Dunmore's proclamation was merely a threat. However, it was enough to give hopes to thousands of enslaved people. As the chaos of the revolution spread throughout that year, so would the desertions amongst the enslaved population, who sought to make their play at freedom amongst the turmoil. For the larger slaveholding colonies, the question of slavery would loom large throughout 1775 and beyond, for both the enslaved people seeking their freedom and for the slave owners who wanted to prevent that very thing from happening. Native Americans also found themselves suddenly having to make major decisions as the prospect of war grew. The Iroquois had been in a precarious situation for years. By the time that the French and Indian War had come to an end, their power was already declining, and the past decade had done little to help. There certainly was a distrust between the Confederacy and the American colonists. However, what existed was likewise a complicated codependence on each other that had been in place for decades. The desire for the Iroquois was to declare neutrality and stay out of it altogether. This, however, would never be an easy position and did not become easier to accomplish when Arnold and Allen took Ticonderoga and Crown Point. Now, the fight was right there in the Iroquois front yard. The Iroquois are going to spend the next several years being courted by both the Americans and the British. This story would repeat itself throughout the frontiers of the American colonies as tribes everywhere had to decide what was best for them. These positions were, of course, not set in stone. Over the coming years, these positions would constantly evolve and change. As we move through the revolution on this podcast, we are going to keep returning to this question of why people, outside of those central figures that we all know, were fighting. Those motivations are going to help define not only the war itself, but what would come in the aftermath of the violence. The ramifications of the decisions of all of these groups would have an impact long into the future and well beyond the revolution. Next time, with the war underway, the colonies needed an army. And thankfully, George Washington just so happened to own the uniform. Right as the new army is being formed, the Americans would face a major military engagement in Massachusetts as the two sides set their eyes on Bunker Hill. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time for the Battle of Bunker Hill. <laughs> <laughs>